0: My name is Seth. I'm one of the pastors here on staff. I get to teach our last week on the series about money. If you've been with us the last three weeks, we talked, uh, it was a series called Rich Toward God, which we got through, um, which is a text taken straight out of Luke 12. The way it says is the one who lays up treasure for himself is not rich towards God. This idea of laying up treasure in heaven, what does it mean to have, if our heart follows our money, how do we invest our money in such a way that makes us rich towards God, not just rich towards the things of the earth? And so Luke started off the series talking about that. Last week he talked about how to not stress about money. If you uh, have haven't listened to that one, please go back and check it out. And this week I'm ending the series uh, on money. And and even in preparing for this, uh, there's this awareness that I have that part of the reason that money is such a difficult topic to talk about. And so I've been at this church about six and a half years. This is the second time we've explicitly talked about uh, money. And so it's not like a regular frequent occurrence. If you're here for the first time in a while or the first time, uh, it's not like a weekly thing. It's like hey, everyone, money, open up your wallets. It's just, it, it comes up. But there is like this trepidation about it. Like I, I have this reputation uh, amongst my friends as being uh, what they call socially aggressive. You know, it's like, nice to meet you. Tell me about your relationship with your father. And they're like, oh gosh, you know? And I just go, I'm not, I'm not good at small talk, so I just skip right past it and say, like, what makes you go? What's your biggest fears, you know? And so, so we go straight down to it. And what'll happen a lot of times is that people will find out I'm a pastor. And actually, like, after initially building some trust, they'll start telling me about some, like, dark, difficult things that's happened to them, to other people. It gets really intense. They'll be telling me about... Um, the things they did in college, they're ashamed. They'll talk about their internet history last week and how they wish it was different. They'll talk about um, the strained connection they had with their wife and they'll ask them about their money and they'll say, whoa, that's private. (laughs) (laughs) Like, whoa, we're just talking about like, you were talking to me about sexual struggles and like it's, and that was nothing. But now we talk about like the the numbers on a screen that you check and like, no, that's, that's, that's too much. I'm not going there. And I think it's interesting in our current culture where, where uh, you know, sexuality and things like that have become more and more open and less and less hidden, that there's like this, this liberation in that direction. But that wave of like uh, you know, financial liberation has, has not hit. People are still deeply private, deeply ashamed. And if you do a quick Google search and you check out like on TikTok financial advice or what to do with money on, on YouTube shorts, you check it out. There are two really consistent messages you're gonna get. Message number one is you should feel bad about what you have. Message number two is you should feel bad about what you don't have. And so the consistent message is feel bad. If you have a lot, feel bad about it because it's probably not fair. If you don't have a lot, feel bad because you're probably a huge loser and that's why you don't have much. Those things don't fit together. They don't really work. They don't produce a cohesive world, dude. They They don't, and so, but the message is shame. How you are is not how you should be. Feel bad, different, you know, if you, like if you don't have a lot, so one community wants to tell you, that's because you're better than other people. Other people are consumers and capitalists and blah, 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 blah. You don't have a lot. The same community will tell that exact same people, take responsibility, do something with your life, you're a loser. And, then you, and so the, the messaging back and forth is incongruent and it's difficult. And so when we come to like try to have a conversation about money, I'm aware that in the room there's already mostly just the shame message of whatever position you hold, however much you have or don't have, you should probably be feeling bad about it. So that's why we don't talk about money. <laughs> and here's my hope. And here's, here's my, as we're ending this sermon series on money, as we're landing this plane on this three-week Rich Toward God series, is my hope is that you leave here with a little more sense of uh, a gratitude and sense of having been blessed. That the, that the main message you walk away from is God has entrusted to me meaningful responsibility in managing what he's given to me. Not some shame message about, I don't, have a mu- I don't have enough. Not a shame message about, I have too much. Rather, a grace message of, I have an opportunity to make the most of what God's given me. And rather than comparing and judging and angling and trying to like pretend we have less than we have. pretend Like everybody wants to be right in that perfect bell curve, normal. Nobody wants to be, you know, awkwardly too much. Nobody wants to be awkward too much. But I'm just saying to you. God is the sovereign dispenser of gifts and assets. And we have this capacity to leverage what he's given us. And rather than feeling shame about what we have or don't have, we want to feel opportunity about what he's called us into. And so what I have here is uh, like six statements or six affirmations or six beliefs that I want you all to walk away with, holding on to, that I think will energize and motivate us to be good managers of God's money. All right? So let me pray and then we're going to walk through this. Lord Jesus, have mercy on us as we try to um, cut through some of the shame that comes with finance and financial discussions. I ask that we'd see money as your design and that we receive it as good. In your name we pray, amen. Amen, so the first thing I want us to understand and wrap our minds around is that money is a convenient symbol of value. First, you have to ask the question, like, what even is money? Uh, sometimes we think about money uh, as like the goal of life, that if I hit some arbitrary number on my app that I refresh, that means I'll feel good about myself. Sometimes I think about money as the pursuit, the thing I'm working towards, but I want us to see money as a convenient symbol of value. There's three parts of this. Uh, The first one is convenience. We see this in Deuteronomy 14, that when God is calling people to go to the temple and give to the Levites. So the Levites would have been uh, the the, the managers of the religious assembly or like the the church in ancient Israel. And he says, you need to go and uh, tithe all all the yield of your seed that comes to your field year by year. That's Jeremy 14, 22. So tithe out of your yield. And he says, but if you have this gigantic yield uh, of wine, of oils, um, herds, and flocks, and verse 24 says, if the way is too long for you, so you're not able to carry the tithe, then you, um, when the Lord God has blessed you, because it's too far away, then you turn it into money and bind up the money in your hand. So basically trade it out for silver or gold and allow it, make it a more convenient transaction. So rather than being bound up in like, well, I have 10 cattle, I got to get rid of one of them to tithe, saying like, just sell them that cattle make it the trip easier. So money's designed to be this convenient exchange of goods and services. Um, not only that, but it's a symbol of value. Now value is how much you want something, how much something matters to you. Like what something is valuable to you, maybe worth less to someone else. If That's the case and they can buy it and you don't need to buy it. But also in our sinful broken world, value is assigned based on our sinfulness and brokenness. There's all types of goods and services in the world that should have no demand but they instead have incredibly high demand. Likewise, there's all these goods and services that should have higher demand, but there's virtually no demand. That's part of the reason why there's all this pay discrepancy and things like that, and supply and demand is tainted by human sin. But I want us to understand is that money symbolizes value. And if money is a convenient symbol of value, then it's a tool meant to be leveraged, not a goal for which you live your life. When you see your bank account, when you see your check, when you see uh, uh, all, all that's moving in and out of your life, I want you to see this as symbol of value, that this could mean something, but it's not something. What money represents is possibility. What money represents is value. This is one of the reasons why I think that uh, finances can be such a shameful topic for people, is if your salary is 20000 and their salary is 40000 it then for feels like that person is twice as valuable as me but that's not the case. That's not how God assigns value. That's how a market based on people's good mix of good and bad evaluations of things has assigned value. So rather than seeing your value, your personal value as being bound up in how much money you make or have or don't have, I want you to see your money as a symbol of possibility that could be made into something that's real. See, money is not real. It's just a symbol it's meant to give you access to things. Money can become something, but in of itself it's not something. I think we'd have a much healthier relationship to money if we understood that it was just a convenient symbol of value. It's like gas in the tank. It's not the destination, it's not even the journey. It's just possible journey towards a possible destination. All right. Number 2. My money is not my money. I know that sentence contradicts itself, but I did it that way anyway. So here's what it says in in this parable that that, uh, Luke gives us in uh, Luke chapter 12. He calls us servants and managers, the faithful and wise manager. Now what is a manager? A manager takes care of something that belongs to someone else. The manager doesn't own something. The manager is leveraging something, maximizing something, using something for good. That these managers here are called to watch over something While the master is away, to make most of it, to do the best they can with it. It's kind of like a door dash driver, right? They didn't make the food. They're not going to eat the food. They're the in-between. All of us should view ourselves as managers of God's money. See, in a purely capitalist worldview, all that I have is mine. In a purely Marxist worldview, all that I have, I don't even actually have it. The state has it, and it's collectively owned by all of us. In a purely biblical view, all that you have belongs to God, See, I don't have some money and I give 10% of it to God. I have no money. God has all the money and I give 10% of it to the church. It reminds me of when I was a kid, you know, eight or nine years old, fighting over something with my brother. It's mine, it's mine, it's mine, it's mine. My dad would come up and say, none of you have anything. I own everything in this house. You're not 18. You have no legal ownership of anything. (laughs) This whole argument is waste. Then I had to like figure out, okay, well then, but I got it for my birthday. So what does that mean? You know, so (laughs) did you get it for my birthday? You know, and you try to split hairs with with dad. But the whole point was like, look, I hope all of us realize none of us own anything. We have stuff that belongs to God that he's entrusted to us to leverage and maximize and steward and use and invest and get returns on and and buy good environments and spaces and, and invest in relationship. And so, Nothing is yours. This is, this is an incredibly difficult thing for Americans in particular to stomach. That you've been entrusted with something, but you don't own it. Like, I think some of us need the spiritual discipline, the spiritual practice of opening up our bank accounts on the phone and saying, I'm checking God's bank statement today. <laughs> one of his seven billion something bank statements. or you know, That God's entrusted different things to the seven something billion people on this earth and you are managing one seven billionth of God's assets. Sometimes that can make you feel like nothing. <laughs> Sometimes that can make you feel like, but it's God's assets, right? My wife and I are watching this show called, um, I think it's, is about lawyers. They wear suits. They wear suits. Yeah. And they're trying to land these big clients, right? Got to land the clients. And like, if you get a big client to believe in you and trust you, then you have this like opportunity. And if like, if that client trusts you, then that means something. But if this like loser client trusts you, it doesn't mean anything, you know? And like, when God has entrusted things to you, that is dignifying. My money is not my money. If I can say that and believe that, then that will simultaneously open my hand to things and help me take it seriously that I'm serving God with this. Uh, this kind of leads to like, when it comes to like working for someone, I had this high school basketball coach. This leads me to my next point, which our money must be uh, rightly managed now. This is part of the point of this parable. Not like there are other things in your life that you can figure out later. Part of the thrust of this parable is figure like get it buttoned up now. This is priority. Uh, take financial peace university. Take like get your trusts and will stuff in order. Get your affairs buttoned up. Uh, tight, like manage God's money well now, not later. The whole the whole thrust of this is um, they're going look. The master is gone. These servants are working on stuff, and there's this one manager who's like ah. He's going to be back in a long time. Don't worry about it. My master's delayed in coming. He begins to eat. And he begins to beat the other servants, eat and drink and get drunk. He's wasting time. He's not leveraging stuff. He's mismanaging stuff. The servant comes back and does, when he doesn't expect him, he does not know and will cut him into pieces. Now, in the original Greek, that means you don't want it to happen to you. It's bad case that wasn't clear. Uh, It's probably a metaphor, but you roll that dice. I don't know. (laughs) Right now, uh, we need to get our... I'm I'm preaching to myself here. You know, I I don't have my affairs in order. I'm preparing for this thinking, I need to do this now, like part of this, there's a little bit of like, come on, let's, what are we waiting for? You know, you've been saying you'll do it next time for a couple months now. You've been saying next month you'll get an order. You've been saying next year I'll get that trust finished. You've been saying next year I'll get my living will done. He's going to like, you've been saying that. Guess what? You don't know when he's coming back. You better right now get it done. You don't know when you'll get struck by lightning, drop dead. You know when the Lord's going to come back and call you to account. Right now we want to get this buttoned up. Now, part of the reason we don't take that exhortation seriously is we often fall out of respect for God. Uh, so I uh, played two sports, one pretty well, one pretty poorly. I was pretty good at volleyball. And then on basketball, I like squeaked off the bench when we were doing, uh, when we were in the lead. I led the team in two categories in basketball, free throw percentage and flagrant fouls. Because I got frustrated. I, got, I was frustrated. It was a frustrating experience for me. But really, the coach put me on the team because I could shoot threes really well. Uh, he was like, don't try to dribble. Don't try to pass. Don't try. If you catch it in your open, shoot it. Don't do anything else. You know, so it was, that was kind of the, I was too slow. And I, they, sometimes they put me on the other team's best player just to foul him really hard to see if it, like, cracked him, you know. So, but towards the end of the season, I start, I stopped respecting my coach. You know why? Because he was not respectable. That's why. And that, no, it was also because I was 17, and that's kind of how it went, but I I stopped, I kind of started messing around at practice. I stopped like giving it my all. I was barely getting off the bench. What difference does it make? I don't really care about this. And I remember the last game of the year, if we won, we're going to the playoffs. Coach comes up to me and goes, we're down by three. There's 12 seconds left. Trout, are you ready to make a three? And I was like, I've been checked out for months. No, I'm not. (laughs) So he didn't put me in, put someone else in, missed a shot and go to the playoffs. And I was happy about it because I went and played volleyball. So Uh, I was not ready. I had mentally checked out. I stopped believing that I might be called on to do the thing that I was put on the team to do. I started caring more about how thick the cushions were on the, on the bench than about how the game was going. Like, man, ah, we're playing Tempe High. Their chairs suck, you know. I'm, I'm, Can we, we go to play like some Scottsdale school where like the chairs are nice, you know. all this, I started caring about all the wrong stuff, started not caring about all the things that mattered, stopped believing about my role on the team as being important, and I started disrespecting the coach because... I was right about him, but that's not a good reason to check out on the team, you know? So I feel like that happens to us spiritually all the time, especially financially. There's like this, does God really care? I'm not really playing that big of a role. My slice of the pie is just this big. And eventually he's gonna call on us. and say, are you ready? And we're gonna say, for what? Oh, we're still, oh yeah, the thing you asked me to do, I was gonna do it later. And I just want some of you to know, I know you've been having good intentions about getting your finances in order for a long time. And I wanna say this, Stop having good intentions about it. Start having good actions about it. You can do this. God has given you wisdom. Like there's a lot of people in this church who are really good with money. If you need help, ask for help. We have classes available, opportunities to get engaged. If you're just totally, like if you've so internalized the messages about I should feel bad or uh, the other side of things, I should feel bad that you're too scared to ask for help. I'm gonna say, repent of being controlled by the world's message and instead receive God's message that he's entrusted something to you and the wisdom of the community is enough to get you on the straight and narrow financially. Ask for help, take a class, do what you need to do. Right now, uh, start managing God's money well. Um, The next one we got here is uh, the more money God has entrusted to me, the more of a return he expects. We see this in verse 48. Everyone to whom much was given, of him much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. One of the biggest issues we can have in living in in a cultural moment like this is we think that we're doing great financially and we decide that based on comparing ourselves to other people. But here's the reality is you don't know the cards that everybody else got dealt. They don't know the cards you got dealt. You don't know what inheritance they received. You don't know what inheritance they didn't receive. You don't know um, what like their internal gifting is. You don't know what their external gifting is. You don't know what their bank account is. You don't know how they're leveraged. You don't know how they're not leveraged. You don't know what they're like. You cannot define financial success on the basis of comparing yourself to somebody else because God is going to define financial success on the basis to what he's given to you. This is a little bit foreboding. But the person who's given, like I think about like in, my, like in my family history, part of the reason I don't like talking about money is like, so like my grandpa moved here from, my great grandpa moved here from Texas uh, to Arizona because they were hungry. They were dirt farmers, which means you're bad at it. And they moved to Arizona because they were hungry. And my grandma's moved here from Ohio because they're coal miners. There's a couple years that my great-grandpa made less than $400 in a year in like the 50s. And so then I look at, and look at where they start, look where they end, look at how it goes, look how they finish, look at what they're... And like, here's the other thing is they're big-time poker players and their whole message was, you play the cards you're dealt. <laughs> That's a more Arizona way of saying, to whom much is given, much is required. <laughs> you play the cards you're dealt. And I think some of us are probably feeling really great about how we're doing financially because we're comparing ourselves to the bell curve. And I want you to say, don't decide if you're doing well or not on the basis of comparison. Decide whether you're doing well or not on the basis of, am I doing the most that I can with what God has given me? All right, next one. As I align my heart with God's heart, I will adjust how I invest my money. Now, when I say investing money, I don't just mean uh, financial return investment. I mean, whenever I'm spending money, I'm investing in something. When I go to the grocery store and I buy groceries, I'm investing in my family's physical well-being. When I uh, go out to to take my wife on a date, I'm investing in our marriage. When I, uh, you know... uh, paint a wall in my house, I'm investing in an environment that hopefully will create meaningful connection. Like I, I don't want us to think about spending money as much as I want us to think in every category that we're we're buying something with everything we ever do and am I getting what I actually want with my money? Am I getting the investment, the return on investment that I'm actually looking for? And here's part of what um, it says here is that um, There's two types of people here. He says, the servant who knew his master's will, but did not get ready, got a more severe beating. But the one who did not know, and he still deserved beating, but he got a light beating. That's kind of like making an omelet. This is like an omelet recipe, light beating, severe beating, you know what I mean? So there is this graded scale of how severe you're judged based on what you know about God. And all of us, I hope, the rest of our lives on earth grow in affection and knowledge for God, which means that our use of money will be required by God to be more and more in alignment with God's heart and will. So when you first become a Christian, you know about this much about God's heart and will. But after you become a Christian, you know a little bit more. And then the rest of your life, you know more and more about God's will for our life, his heart for our life, his desire for us as people. And so if you're Basically, investing your money the same way at 27 as you are at 97, that's another way of signaling to me that you've grown nothing theologically or relationally with regards to God. So also, rather than judging your past self for how you use money, you should go like, well, based on what I know now, here's what I need to do with this. As you're growing in God's heart, it should alter how we change our money. If the heart follows our money, it's also the case that our money follows our heart. the easiest thing to do when you're confronted with a misuse of money is we want to work through that. And so here's what I have. I prepared a list of just a bit of a flyover about God's heart for you for money. And I hope this kind of jostles some stuff. And so we'll get there. So the first thing... is love. I hope you're not super surprised by that. He says, and he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. That our money is investing somehow in people, spaces, places, connections, relationships. That when you, when you're paying rent or buying a house, you're creating a space for love to take place. We're not just buying a house because that's what suburbanites do. We're investing in people, environments where love might happen. Next one is justice. He has told you, oh man, what is good and what it does the Lord require of you, but to do justice, love kindness, walk humbly with your God. That God's standard for justice is higher than man's standard for justice. The fact that you could legally exploit someone or, or work a tax loophole to take advantage of someone does not mean that God's okay with it, just so everybody knows. God's standard for justice is higher than the American legal system standard for justice. We as Christians wanna operate on a higher standard of right and wrong and a higher standard of how to treat people than even the law uh, of the land requires. Uh, Next one we got is contentment. But godliness with contentment is a great gain for if we bought nothing into the world, we can't take nothing out of the world. If we had a food and clothing with this, we'll be content. This is one of the reasons why I think like Amazon Prime can be like the, you know, people talk about the internet and it's like, what are the good parts and bad parts of the internet? Everyone's like, well, bad parts, pornography. And I wanna say, and also maybe on-demand one-click shopping, like I when I talk to people about finances, the shame often comes from this kind of compulsive spending. And you look at your Amazon purchase list and you're going like, I thought all these things were gonna spark joy. And once I get this, then I'll be content. And then you get it and you still hate yourself. You get it, and there's still that emptiness deep inside, and you get it, and it overpromised and underdelivered, and now you're going, Ah, I made a bad financial choice and it's too late. And contentment is both a phenomenal finance strategy and also a spirituality that we must pursue, recognizing that so often the fulfillment and, and meaning we're looking for in things is actually demonic lies telling you buy this and you'll be happy, when in reality, the only pure sense of joy we'll ever have is in Christ and in, in the context of meaningful, fulfilling relationships underneath that lordship. Some of you, the most spiritual thing you will do is put a 24-hour rule on all your Amazon Prime purchases. If I still want it tomorrow, then I'll buy it. Good luck with that, contentment. <laughs> share, we want to share, right? Sometimes when, so I have a three-year-old, people are coming over like, Jay, your cousin Nile is coming over. Look at me in the eyes, say, I will share my toys with Nilea. Say it. I will share my toys with Nilea. All right, church, let's do it together. I will share my things. Say it with me. I will share my things. Now, this is not communal ownership. This is I have things, and out of the abundance of those things, I'm a blessing to other people. And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and whoever has a food is to do likewise. Abundance leads to generosity, inclusion, sharing. Uh, that's pretty clear. Next one, helping the poor. Whoever closes his ear to the cry of the poor will himself call out and not be unanswered. And not be answered. That's called a threat. If you don't listen to the cry of the poor, God is less likely to listen to your cry. Don't want that to happen. Uh, next one: tithing. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you tithe mint and dill and cumin, and have neglected the weightier matters of the law. So can a Pause there. So the scribes and Pharisees were so kind of bound up in trying to obey God's law that they would go to their spice racks and take out ten percent and give it to uh, the the Levites. I talked about how like giving ten percent to the Levites would be like the, the same thing as giving today. You're investing in the religious community, the assembly of the religious community. Uh, and I grew up in a church context, and kind of the message I heard on giving to the church was, if you want to, go for it, some ambiguous amount that you can decide. Uh, And I was, I was honestly kind of taught slash told like tithing is legalism. We don't really want to do that. Uh, We don't, we want to kind of just only just give out of some kind of subjective sense of what I think I ought to do. Uh, And I think there's an impulse there to avoid legalism, which I appreciate. I think that's good, but I also think that's just not what the Bible teaches. Uh, Here's what Jesus says here. They neglected the weightier matters of the law. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. He is not correcting them tithing 10% to the local assembly. He's correcting them by saying, and you neglected things that matter more than that, like justice and mercy. You think you're justified before God because you're following the rules that you can solve in a spreadsheet, but you're not. These relational how we treat people rules are bigger than that law. However, you should have been doing that law too. So he's not correcting them for tithing. He's correcting them for by their tithing, thinking that they're good. See, legalism is not careful obedience to God's law. Legalism is believing you can earn God's affection through careful obedience to God's law. Uh, Randy Alcorn said it like this. I've heard Christians argue, often angrily, that tithing is legalism. However, the average American Christian gives 2.5%. Even using 10% as a measure, the Israelites were four times more responsive to the law of Moses than the average American Christian is to the grace of Christ. When we as New Testament believers living in a far more fluent society than ancient Israel give only a fraction of that given by the poorest Old Testament believers, we surely must reevaluate our concept of grace giving. If you fear legalism, fine. Just start at 10 or 11 or 12%. I'm telling you this because when I was a pastor at my previous church, had three years of seminary under my belt, I was wrong about tithing. I was sitting in the pew, listening to a sermon, and Dez, who's the lead pastor at Grace Community Church, preached a sermon on tithing, and I was sitting in there like, whoops, I remember to go home and confess to my wife, I know, you said tr- I, know I told you to trust me with finances, and I know I told you that tithing wasn't a big deal, and I'm telling you now, I was wrong and we adjusted our automatic giving that day. It's not pleasant finding out you're wrong and you to change your perspective and change your behavior, but that's the gift of repentance. I'm telling you this as someone who's wrong about tithing and had to change my perspective seven or eight years ago. And I just hope you know that as a Bible teacher, my goal is not to make anybody feel bad, but I want to give you the opportunity to know what God says so you can follow it. Uh, I I hope that some of you, I don't even, I, I don't know what anybody gives. I don't keep track of that. Uh, I like it, it's, I just like not knowing that. Uh, we don't harass people to show me your pay stub, make sure it's 10%. I do think this is like a between the you and the Lord situation thing. But I'm just telling you that I had to go and have a confess to my wife I was doing it wrong and then change my pattern after hearing teaching on, nope, we ought to be giving 10%. So I hope some of you go home and, you can tomorrow be a little more faithful by making an easy choice today to update that stuff. And here's the last point I want us to make, is when I, I got ahead of myself, sorry. Save wisely, also important. You go back to that. I was wrong, you're right, slide person. You go to, save wisely. Precious treasure and oil are in a wise man's dwelling, but a foolish man devours it. Elsewhere in Proverbs, it tells us to look at the ants, how they store up food for winter. Sometimes people think if I save money, is that man I don't trust God? I say, no, saving money sounds like you're obeying the Proverbs, which says it's good for you to have margin in case things go wrong. How much are exactly those things is different person to person. But the exhortation in Proverbs is that a foolish person lives kind of hand to mouth, paycheck to paycheck, constantly living at our means. The exhortation is to live below your means so that when trouble hits, you have margin. Next one is giving cheerfully. We want to give from a cheerful heart, excited to do so, believing we're investing in what God is doing. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion for God loves a cheerful giver. You know, If I take my wife on a date and I'm all fussy when the bill comes, it's called ruining the evening. <laughs> like, oh no, I'm, I'm investing in us. That's what I'm doing. We don't want to be tight fisted or, or greedy or stingy. We wanna like when we're when we're giving to other people, when we're giving to the church, when we're giving to the poor, when we're when we're giving to causes, when we're when we're investing and creating space. Like I've a I've a pretty good friend who uh, he's he goes here and he's a great finance advisor. And he was saying like he called me and I think he way he started the conversation was, I'm about to make a really bad financial decision. And I was like, Okay, so you're calling me to talk you out of it, or you're just preemptively confessing, you know, what's the deal? So I'm going to put a pool in my backyard. I got young kids. They're really rowdy. they think it'd be great. They'd have a lot of fun, get the energy out, create this great environment for, a sp- for their space. You know, I want to do it. Not, like, I don't want to be like just like so bent up and return on investment financially that I, I want to do that. And I just want, and here's when I talk about giving or investing, like we're getting a lot of different types of returns on our money like space creating for family and hospitality is a bad financial investment if the only returns you're considering are financial. But if you're also considering relational, spiritual, emotional, discipleship, connecting, that could be an excellent return investment in those other areas. And so cheerfully letting go of money that's getting us what God has called us to pursue is a great and good spiritual discipline. One of the things it says in the book of Ecclesiastes is this. I perceive that there's nothing better than to be joyful and to do good as long as you live, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all the work. This is God's gift to man. In the midst of all this talk about giving and and investing and connecting, enjoyment of creation is a basic recognition of the fact that God is gracious and he gave us all these things to enjoy. Last point, we're gonna end here. The more deeply I believe the gospel of grace, then my entitlement will go down, my gratitude will go up. Paul asks this question with a really obvious rhetorical answer in 1 Corinthians 4, 7. He says, what do you have you did not receive? He's correcting entitlement in the Corinthians. We're like, mine, I, he's like, what do you have you not receive? And if you received it, why do you boast as though you didn't receive it? Try and just cut it the knees of like, look, God is the benefactor here. God is the generous one here. God is the one dispersing resources. God is the one investing in you so that you can invest what you've been given. An air of entitlement of boasting has no place when you believe in a gracious God. Not even the fact that Jesus died you and gave his life for you, but the fact that Jesus was gracious before he even saved you from hell, he also saved you from boredom. He gave you a world to enjoy and inhabit. But this gospel of grace, like even talking financially, we so often are tempted to believe and to society, this is secular society, this is true, you are as valuable as your assets and your salary. That's your value to the world. But I just wanna tell you, that's not your value. When Christ looked at you, he saw you valuable to the point that he would purchase you with his blood the true and eternal horizon on your assumed value is the very life of Christ, the son who gave his life for you to purchase you out of slavery and death so that he could have connection to you. And that creates an abundance, openness of heart that I have a father who owns a cattle on a thousand hills. And so I don't need to have this this lack mentality, but I can have an abundance mentality as I recognize that God has graced me with so many opportunities to invest and connect and serve and give and move in all these different ways. And rather than seeing our money as something that we serve, we see money as something that serves God's purposes when we manage it well. And so I hope that we as Redemption Gateway leave this series on money with two things that we recognize with gratitude that all that we have, we have received from a gracious and generous God. And number two, rather than having this kind of anxious, shameful relationship with money, we see our finances as an opportunity to invest in the kingdom in a variety of different ways. This opportunity and gratitude. That is what God is working in our hearts. And as we sing and as we celebrate and as we pray, I hope that God continues to just stir in our hearts this gratitude and this sense of opportunity. Let me pray for us. Jesus, have mercy on us. I ask that you would help us see our money through your eyes. We wouldn't worship it. We wouldn't make it our goal of life, but we'd see it as something we can use, something we can leverage, something we can maximize to your glory. God, make us good managers. Help us believe all the more deeply that everything we have ultimately belongs to you. And God, I pray that we would not be tempted any longer to find our sense of value or self-worth in the way that our economic moment has valued our labor. Rather, I pray that we can find our worth and value in the price you're willing to pay in your death and your resurrection. Give us a sense of joy and freedom as we walk forward financially. In your name we pray, amen. Amen.